0: This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Season 7, Episode 3. Is the Iran Nuclear Deal Back On? A Conversation with Bill Borum. In October 2015, the Obama administration and P5 Plus One struck a deal with Iran to slow the development of nuclear weapons. But one of the early actions of the Trump administration was to abrogate the deal to the delight of Israel, Saudi Arabia, and our Persian Gulf allies, who viewed the deal as a giveaway to the Iranians. Now, however, with the arrival of the Biden administration, talks have been going on to revive the deal. With us to discuss the recent developments is Bill Borum, a citizen diplomat who's been keeping close tabs on developments in Washington and Tehran. Iran is a large country about the size of Alaska, 630,000 square miles, with a population of 84 million people. It's a young country with a median age of 30 versus the median age in the United States of 38. Though it's a large oil producer, Iran's economy has been crippled by economic sanctions, which were imposed to curtail the development of a nuclear capability. It's a majority Shia Muslim country in a heavily Sunni region. Iran has testy relations at best with many of its neighbors, and it has sponsored terrorist operations in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Meanwhile, strategic shifts have taken place in the Persian Gulf, with Israel having established diplomatic relations with Dubai, Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, and Qatar, with the Trump administration having acted as honest broker. Our guest, Bill Borum, will help us understand what the Biden administration is trying to achieve. Bill is chairman emeritus of Sister Cities International, as well as an elected director of the Sonoma Sonoma Valley Hospital in Sonoma, California. Bill has a long and active career in the field of citizen diplomacy. Bill and I used to work together in the financial services industry, and we continue to collaborate on sister city activities. Bill, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jim, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be on. You've got an increasing network of (laughs) listeners throughout the globe. So I guess I'd like to ask you the first question. How many, how many, well, how, in which countries do you have listeners? Let me put it that way. How many countries do you reach?
0: Well, it's uh, funny that you asked that question. Based, <laughs> on, based, on the, uh, based on the metrics that I have, we reach 48 different countries. Uh, of course, the big countries that you would expect, the United States, Canada, UK, Western Europe, um, Russia, Serbia, most of Asia, India, of course, Africa, uh, a large swath of south america and then some some countries that uh you know some countries that are a little more obscure like georgia the country not the state uh belize albania uh bangladesh fiji new zealand so we're we're lit, we're heard in 48 different countries and that's the that's the the wonder of the internet and uh, and podcasting so thank you for asking and uh for any of our listeners out there i'm delighted that we can bring bill borum to all of the listeners both in the united states and overseas with a unique perspective of a of a citizen who is dedicated to diplomacy and to furthering the interest of uh of the american people and having good relations throughout the world
1: well thanks very much for those kind comments i will note That it was only a couple of weeks ago that I was having several conversations on Zoom, of course, with a colleague in Georgia, the country. Uh And we had met previously in Greece several years ago at a conference. So that, of course, was an in-person meeting, but we've stayed in touch and working on something uh, between the countries right now. And then most recently, I did have a Zoom conversation with Iran. So it's uh, great what telecommunications does for us these days. But, um, well, let's uh, go on to your questions about the current situation, U.S.-Iran.
0: Well, of course, when the Trump administration came into office in 2017, they had made it a campaign pledge that they would tear up the Iran agreement on day one. And I don't know if it was on day one, but it was shortly thereafter that uh, the Trump administration stepped away from that agreement. And then, of course, since then, we've had uh, Israel, which has been implacably opposed Mm -hmm. to Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Israel now has diplomatic relations for the first time ever with a host of our allies in the Persian Gulf. So it seems as though has the U.S. position strengthened as a result of those moves? Vis-a-vis Iran?
1: Yeah, I think the U.S. position is a strong one. And uh, although Trump, uh, during his campaign and early in his presidency, vowed to get out of the deal, he had a lot of things going on. And it was not until May of 2018 that it was actually the U.S. stepped away. I don't know whether there was some notice that had to be be given, but that was really the date, May of 2018, And uh, uh, since then, as you reference, there have been these agreements for normal relations, no alliances as such, but normal relations, you know, travel and commercial relations established with four different countries by Israel, uh, the latest being uh, in in Morocco. In fact, I recently had a long conversation with uh, people in Morocco about that very deal, when that was done in January the recognition of, um, the relationship with, with Morocco, one of the last of the four. But in any event, I think that the, uh, uh, the U S is, is in a stronger position. Uh, not, not so much because of these arrangements, but I think it does put Israel on normal relations with more and more of the Middle East countries. And so that does make them stronger. I think that, um, the, uh also, uh, just last week, last Thursday, it was, I think, a very supportive joint statement put out by the U.S. and the E3, that is the U.K., Germany, and France, which called for uh, a deal to, to get uh, the Iranians to perform, be in compliance. So I think that joint statement was very powerful.
0: Now, how far out of compliance has Iran stepped? Because when the U.S. abrogated the deal in 2018, did did Iran steam ahead and uh, open up all the throttles to develop nuclear weapons, or was it a little more
1: cautious? No, it was they moved quite, quite a bit ahead, and they violated three or four covenants of the agreement. And, uh, of course, uh, that's what's... Uh, referred to as the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Those are the letters that we keep seeing in the news reports, the general public. Um, they've abrogated both in terms of the uh, purity of the uranium that they're refining, going from, I think it was uh, 3 or 4 percent purity to 20 percent mm-hmm. going up to that level, they are producing uranium metal, which about its only utility or use is part of a nuclear weapon, mm. and they continue their work on ballistic missiles. Now, these are things which um, the Trump administration was looking to bring into future into negotiations, and these actually are the same things which the Biden administration is now seeking. The Uh, Because Iran moved ahead, uh, abrogating these parts of the plan of action, uh, they've got to roll back. They've got to reverse. So that's what the administration officially is asking for before the U.S. will rejoin any discussions.
0: Now, in order to ask Iran to backtrack and to go back to uh, to, to turn off the the cent- centrifuges from 20% purity of uranium to 3% um, purity, for instance. Asking them to do that, what will we have to give up in return? Because they're not going to give that up without, uh, without getting some concession from us.
1: Well, they want lifting of all of the sanctions. That has been their position. Uh, their economy is in very difficult straits because it's not just um, rela- uh, transactions or activity with the U.S., but it's with anyone else. So we've been very effective in um, cramping down their economy. So they want all of those sanctions lifted, which we're not going to do. I mean, that's politically infeasible for Biden to do it, even for Biden uh, to do that. Uh, it's it's too much of a concession But, um, you know, therein could lie the opportunity for first steps. Right now we're looking at who's going to make the first even small concession. You know, it could be that uh, certain maybe sanctions could be lifted on certain things for uh, be suspended, what have you. So there could be a marginal opportunity there. But still, Iran's going to have to step back itself uh, that one of the um ones that it could take some action on of course is notified uh, that it that it can't uh, it doesn't want to allow inspectors on its you know land in the country there to look at its uh, facilities They uh, they not allowed the daily inspections so that's something that maybe they could step back from but i mean this is so we, well, i think we have to hope for some little um, uh give backs so to speak in the current situation to get get anyone talking
0: you know it's interesting um joe biden when he was the chairman of the senate foreign relations committee for many years uh he was a staunch ally and supporter of israel now during the obama administration oh, the obama administration was a little cooler towards Israel. And of course, Biden was the vice president, so his ability to influence the Obama administration's foreign policy was really quite limited. It'll where, where do we think Joe Biden is going to come out? Is he going to go back to his old self when he was a staunch Israel supporter uh, as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? Or is he going to be more of an Obama administration Uh, kind of arm's length, a little cooler with Israel, because that will largely determine how his negotiating position vis-a-vis Iran, in a sense, his negotiating position vis-a-vis Iran is largely tied into his relationship with Israel, right?
1: Right. Well, Jim, you bring up a very good point there. The fundamentals here are that Biden's going to be supportive of Israel as a, you know, it's it's his show. He's no longer—you know, there were a few policy differences that came to light, you know, with the Obama administration. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, it's his own show, and he's had that long record of support of Israel. And it will be my uh, estimation that that's where he will stand. I think also as he gets deeper into policy formulation and the complexities come to light— I think you raised a good point with these new arrangements between four other sovereign nations that, um, uh, you know, that, that reinforces his pro-Israel stand. And Netanyahu, of course, has been very adamant uh, about Israel's security. Of course, we go back also just in, uh, back in the November of last year, not even six months ago, you know, the... Uh, um, the leading uh, nuclear scientist of Iran was assassinated,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the Iranians assumed that was Israel. And um, who knows what the intelligence really shows. No one on the other side is talking. But uh, Netanyahu has said, and quoted directly probably more than once, that Israel will do anything that's needed to prevent Iran from gaining a nuclear capability. And certainly the assassination of that chief scientist uh, should have sent a very strong message. By the way, I will point out that there was no reaction other than rhetoric on the part of the Iranians to that assassination. Um, The other thing that I recall with regard to the 2015 agreement You know that that was done of course with some fanfare but that was something that was reached pretty much at the last minute and after many many frustrating months um to finally get to that point so this is not going to be easy
0: now in addition to our three European allies, uh, the U.K., France, and Germany, uh, we also have Russia and China who are parties to this P5 agreement with Iran. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, about Russia. I know you have uh, you have a good friend uh, in Tehran who is the correspondent for the Russian TASS news agency. Uh, where does Russia shake out on this? Because Russia historically has always had a very close uh Interest and relationship with Iran, and they are party to this agreement. Where do they stand on this? Where do you think, are they going to come down on the side of the Iranians? Are they going to, uh, will they see this as an opportunity to support the Biden administration? Where do you think, I think the Russians could play a key role here.
1: Well, they could perhaps as a peacemaker or intermediary, but I don't predict that. I think they will continue to support iran um, that's where they're they're going they've got no reason to be um uh, too supportive of the biden administration in my opinion given some of the people that are in that administration that are pretty much anti-russian in a lot of respects so they don't have any i mean if they can keep this situation uh, unsettled that will serve their purposes uh, they want to keep the uh, the west uh, uh, you know, unsettled and uh, back on its feet, so to speak. So I think they've got reasons, not only because of the long-term involvement with Iran, but also just to uh, keep the, keep the Western countries uneasy as part of their development.
0: Hmm. Now, and on a worst-case basis, if Iran were to step away from this agreement entirely and Mm -hmm. obtain their nuclear weapons in the way that uh, north korea has and of course you you know again the history of iran's uh, nuclear capability of course there was the pakistani nuclear scientist uh, dr khan iqbal khan who merrily uh, waltzed around the world and sold nuclear bomb technology to the north koreans to libya to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and of course to Iran. Um, what if, I mean, if Iran basically says the heck with you, uh, we're going to go ahead, we're going to get the bomb, there's no reason why we shouldn't have the bomb if North Korea has the bomb. Um, what do you think, what could the Biden administration do if mm-hmm. we're faced with that? And number one, and number two, as you said earlier, Israel has stated that they will do anything, quote unquote, mm-hmm to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and i take israel at its word when they say anything and we know from past israeli intelligence operations that they have the capability to do some very imaginative missions and strikes so when they say they could do anything or would do anything what would they do so so let's so again let's assume iran gets the bomb what would the Biden administration do? What would their what would their options be? And what do you think Israel would do?
1: Well, I think the real question is at what point before they get a nuclear weapon, actions would be taken because there's a very close following and estimations which vary from expert to expert or intelligence service to another intelligence service as to how far they are from having bomb bomb um, at some point, uh, Action will be taken, um, I think, by by the Israelis, for one, because this is an existential threat to them. And whether they would do it without advice to the U.S. is is another thing. But uh, there, so I think they're, they're not. It's not going to get to that point. And I don't know what the. Uh, it's a very hard choice for the Biden administration. I think it'd be very hypothetical and conjectural to say what they would do. So it's, um, but, you know, they're getting close, whether it's six months or a year or two years, something like that. So.
0: so, and Bill, in terms of the time frame, of course, the Biden administration has been office for all of a month. How much time do they have vis-a-vis the Iranians to do face-to-face negotiations? How much time do they actually have to get a deal?
1: Well, they seem to be impervious to um, the clock and the time frame. Uh, they're being as adamant as they can. I don't think there's a fault to that, actually. But uh, let me bring into the picture a couple of time frame issues that would be of interest, that might be of interest. So here we have a new U.S. administration, which has many things on its plate to do. Uh, including staffing the administration, staffing the State Department. That's usually one of the first things that are done, national security staff. But it's still organizing its government, so that that takes months. Uh, So we're a new administration, but it's kind of, um, I wouldn't say, burdened, hampered, or constrained by um, initiatives that were taken or demands taken by the previous. Now, what's happening in Iran? there's going to be a presidential election on June the 18th Mm -hmm. in Iran. Um, So the current administration, the Rouhani administration, is at a very low point of popularity. It's in its final months, although it doesn't go out until August of this year. Okay? Mm -hmm. So they're in in, until then, but like anything, they lose legitimacy when a new president is elected. But... um, uh, Rouhani was reelected to a four-year term in 2017, and uh, both before that time, as of the 2015, he had a lot of uh, support with this agreement that things were going to get better for the country and in terms of the economy and life in general, but things have gotten much, much worse, including since the May 2018 U.S. pullout or imposition of sanctions. So they're at a low point, but you'd like to think that maybe they would like to go out on a high note uh, by achieving something diplomatically. So whether it's between now and June, or between now and August, probably more likely now in June, they would seemingly have an opportunity to do something, but they can't do anything. Uh, That's really beyond the supreme leader's Um, overall uh, uh, approach, you know, is policy, although it didn't really get into policy. But I guess if you're looking for optimism somewhere, maybe the waning months of the Rouhani presidency might offer something, but uh, likely not. Uh, So what's going to happen with the presidential election coming up? Um, candidates will be declared, starting to declare in April, and it will be in um, early June that a panel of experts will decide, according to Sharia law, who can run for president. Hmm. And so there'll be a number of candidates, probably between five and ten, that will have a short, relatively short campaign <clears throat> on. Um, in-person voting on one day, June the 18th. And then if no one achieves a majority, um, then there'll be a runoff between two more, the two highest vote-getters. So, you know, maybe by the end of June, there'll be a new president uh, about to come into office in Iran. So would that person have an ability to do something about this uh, stalemate early in their administration. So we've got some issues here on the government, uh, the level of the federal governments of both countries, that maybe something can happen.
0: Now, in terms of the candidates, you said it could be up to 10 different candidates who run in the first round of the election in Iran. Are Are there any reformers are there any can is there any one candidate who stands head and shoulders above all the others as perhaps uh representing a break with the past
1: no uh, there aren't if anything the country has become more conservative mm-hmm. and the parliament has become more conservative uh, meaning hard-line so uh there's not uh anyone there that's a reformer type and um, you know Depending on who emerges, maybe that would be different. But it's very difficult to break out of the general policy approach uh, in this regard. So, um, you know, uh, maybe something's got to be done soon. But again, we look back to how the uh, the current agreement, if you want to call it that, how long it took to finally bring that to pass. Mm -hmm. Iranians are very tough negotiators.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Bill, has the has the Biden administration essentially said, okay, the deal was abrogated. We, the Biden administration, are going to revive negotiations with the Iranians in P5. Um, but in the meantime, is the Biden administration going to adhere to the terms of the agreement as though it hadn't been abrogated or, or are they mm-hmm. or are they ignoring it how are they how are they treating this abrogated agreement are they as a show of good faith to the iranians are they trying to observe it in spirit or in law or in word but
1: they want, they want more they want more you know, yeah they, they want more uh, that's really basically the trump line so they want more in the agreement but they won't talk until the, uh, maybe what you were saying was, they're not going to talk to the Iranians until they are in full compliance with the current deal. Then they'll come back uh, I to the table. Also, of course, the Europeans have offered to have some informal discussions with the Iranians. Um, but the U.S. would be there only as a guest, whatever that means a guest, and not called an observer, but the U.S. Mm-hmm. would be there as a guest. But the Iranians have rejected that.
0: Now, in 2019, one year after the Trump administration had abrogated the agreement, John Kerry and former Secretary of Energy uh, Ernest Moniz met with the Iranian Foreign Secretary, Zafir, um, one year after the Trump administration had abrogated the agreement. What was up with that? Um, that a former U.S. Secretary of State was having private conversations with a with the Iranian Foreign Secretary. Talk to me a little bit well, about that.
1: It was extremely irresponsible, um, and uh, you don't want to use the T word there. It's never really been prosecuted. People doing these these types of things, but I, I think that was really an outrage uh, that he did that. Maybe that's a partisan viewpoint. But again, his stature as a former Secretary of State, normally if someone's going to meet with a foreign leader, a former government official, they let the State Department uh, and therefore the White House know they're going to do that. I don't believe that was done um, in that particular case. Um, uh, No no permission was asked, and it was seen as uh, more than a front Uh, to to the current administration, but it was typical of a lot of attempts uh, to undermine uh, Trump policies, and I think uh, particularly outrageous in that it involved a foreign situation. Also, I think that Moniz and him going along, although he's highly qualified technical expert given his background and experience, I think that lent even greater weight and credence to the meeting that Kerry had. I mean, it's one thing for Kerry to run in and out, have some conversations, but to bring along a significant advisor who participated in the previous negotiations, I think that's um, reprehensible and uh, very undiplomatic.
0: So do you think, do you think that when Kerry and Moniz met with, in 2019, after the deal was abrogated when they met with the iranians did they did they look like they were being over eager and over promising and sending the wrong signal to the iranians
1: well yeah i think um i think that it was uh, seen as a fracturing of the trump administration's policy you know that people of this weight would come in and talk against their own government in effect i mean that was the impact of it, whatever was said, we don't know. But just their appearance and addressing these issues would, to me, appear to the Iranians as a fract- fracturing of the U.S. policy.
0: Mm-hmm. Bill, as we come into the uh, closing few minutes of our uh, of our show here. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about Iran, the people of Iran. Um, from what I remember, when I was a student in London in the nineteen seventies, we had lots of Iranians who were there studying, uh, studying abroad. I don't know if mm-hmm. Iranians still do that. They certainly don't come to the United mm-hmm. States to study. It, it, give me a sense of um, if we eventually get to an agreement on this, how Iran, how positive relations between the U.S. and Iran might open up and, you know, a sister city, I don't know, between San Francisco and Tehran or something like that.
1: Well, uh, hopefully the uh, public diplomacy dimension can be brought into play, although it certainly didn't come into play after the current agreement was was approved for some reason. But I would think that NGOs, non-government organizations, should uh, see the opportunity to move in there, uh, to try to do something, to build some bridges with universities, with youth. Um, I will say that the only, door, the only dormant relationship that currently exists uh, with Tehran, and, and only that city in Iran, is um, um, Los Angeles. Oh, really? And it's been inactive for a number of years. I did talk to our people in L.A. that uh, who supervise those relationships. So I'll uh, be looking to the opportunity <laughs> to uh, see what can be done if there's some kind of break uh, in the atmosphere. Of course, I think the San Francisco Sister Cities Movement has a wonderful reputation in that uh, the Vietnam Committee, you know, Uh, Went there in 1992. Yes, six six months or so before uh, relations were officially established. I mean, the mayor went of San Francisco, and uh, they they had been working on that for a while. So the precedent is uh, certainly there for uh, some city to uh, make an approach, and I would hope that that we would would make that, by I'd be encouraging of that move. So, um, well, we'll certainly I, I we'll, did want to say something. You didn't ask the question, but I thought I'd bring it to the fact my own perspective on this, not an authority, just a civilian a citizen diplomat, if you will. But my first awareness uh, of Iran as a country was back in 1953, believe it or not, not that I'm that old, <laughs> but uh, I do remember the overthrow of Mossadegh uh, at the time. Uh, by the CIA and the British Intelligence Services, which was a duly elected government, and um, so that was certainly a stain on our relationship history with the country. And uh, and then, uh, then of course, during the following decades, uh, you had the Shah's excesses, including his marriages. Uh, But uh, then in 1977, I happened to be in Washington, D.C. This was Uh, months into the new Carter administration, and he welcomed the Shah. But unfortunately, there was a lot of protests, and I was only a couple blocks away when tear gas was used Mm -hmm. to dispel the crowds uh, that were protesting. And again, that tear gas uh, was blown back in the face of Carter and the Shah. At least I was there on that day. And only two years later, there was the storming of the embassy, and the taking of the hostages. So there are these milestones which uh, some people in each country remember.
0: Yes. Well, Bill, I want to thank you very much for this, this wonderful overview of our relationship with Iran because for the last four years, it's essentially been on ice. And with the new administration coming in, it looks as though it's going to be revived. But ultimately, what shape or form that takes on uh, is really anyone's guess. I guess I'm somewhat optimistic and I'm, uh, excuse me, I'm somewhat pessimistic and I'm not a pessimist by nature. I'm somewhat pessimistic in that uh, with a new administration coming in in Iran and with the establishment of diplomatic relations with uh, Israel has essentially strengthened its position throughout the uh, throughout the Persian Gulf a position that didn't have at all um, in 2015 when the original agreement was drawn up. So uh, it, it seems to me that yes, the U.S position is strengthened, which is good for us, but from the perspective of the so from the perspective of the Iranians, the Iranians, are not about to make any concessions to us. And on the other hand, our position objectively has strengthened. So it, it looks to me as though we have, we have all the makings of an impasse. I hope I'm wrong. And by nature, I'm an optimist. So uh, we shall see. But Bill, I want to thank you very much for your insights and your experience and your wisdom. I will look forward to inviting you back in a few months' time as the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran unfold. And um, hopefully we'll have better news to share with our listeners at that time.
1: Well, let's certainly hope so. And thank you very much, Jim.
0: Once again, I want to thank our guest, Bill Borum, for helping us understand the complex and shifting goals of U.S. policy in Iran. Thank you, Bill. And I hope you'll come back to talk about Iran again as the new policy begins to take shape. And for our listeners, if you have not already subscribed to the podcast, please go to our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. Subscribing is free, and by subscribing, it ensures that future podcasts come directly to your inbox. This has been Jim Herlihy for the San Francisco Experience, reporting from America's favorite city, San Francisco.